Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious-friendly, pro-democracy, diversity-welcoming, public-good-oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. I'm in the office of the Reverend Dr. George Young, who's state senator for, is it District 48? Senate District 48. Senate District 48 here in Oklahoma. And George, I've had the pleasure of knowing you, I think, since the late 1990s. Yes. When you were still an MDiv student, I think. That's right. uh, That's right. Just finishing. And then when I came back to the seminary in 2005... After being away for about five years, you were a trustee. I was a trustee. And yeah. you were finishing your Doctor of Ministry That's exactly uh, right. a program. It's been a, a joy working with you and getting to know you and <laughs> counting you amongst my community friends for now a long time. It has been a while. It has been a while. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for uh, taking some time to sit down with me today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. So for people who may not know you... A little bit about your vocational background. I think you didn't start in ministry, right? You had a you had a career before ministry. I, I did. I did. My undergraduate degree was in accounting. I, I loved oh, accounting. Uh, high school record keeping when that opened up, and well, I'll be honest with you, I, I probably went into the first record keeping class because I saw a lot of girls going in there. But I kind of yeah. fell in love with accounting. I really did, and just and, and bought that thing. It is the language of business, and so I I got deeply involved in it. Um, went to college. And I went. College, uh, playing basketball was above learning, but uh-huh. uh, but but I did get something from it. I majored in accounting and never changed my major. When I when I graduated from college, I had it, it's not, I don't talk about this much, but I worked at one of the few. It probably was less than five. African-American certified public accounting firms in existence in the whole nation hmm. in 1975, 76 wow. when I graduated. And where was that? Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. Tennessee. Oh yeah, I'm born yeah. and raised in Memphis. Not the school of Jackson, Tennessee, but Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, so one of those firms were in Memphis. And so and it was that when accounting was taken off, everybody needed accountants. The FBI mm-hmm. was even mm-hmm. trying to interview me mm-hmm. because they needed more minorities and needed more minorities in accounting. And uh, it was just an interesting time that a lot of things opened up because of being in accounting at that time. And that, that's really where I started. But yeah, to, to backtrack, you said vocation, so I had to backtrack. When I was about 13, I will assure you and, and will always believe that I received my calling in mm-hmm. ministry at one of those events that we used to call the summer revivals. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I not only felt the presence of God, but I, I actually heard the voice of God telling me that that's where I want you to be. I'm looking up at the pulpit and uh, 
the ministers who were there and just never told him about it. It was, it was nine of us mm-hmm. in our family, and I never told my father and mother, both deeply involved in the church, mm-hmm. active. I mean, my father was like, oh, you know, the deacons who run the church, he, mm-hmm. the pastor would come to our house before he did anything, you know. And my mother was on what we call a motherboard, which was a leading organization for the women. And uh, I never told him about it. And I was like 13 years old, and I didn't acknowledge my calling until I turned 29. 29? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it was a long journey. I ran. Nobody in my family, nobody in my family had been in ministry, and we were church people who went to church all the time, Mm -hmm. religious folk, Mm -hmm. and all that. But, and I don't know if I was actually frightened as much as I was um, kind of um, thinking I had enough sense to know it was. This is probably a big deal, you know? mm-hmm. and, and and I want to be an accountant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to be Every a CPA. Yeah, <laughs> I want to make some good money. You know, I wanna, that's what I want to do. And so, to me, that would interfere with my uh, striving to be uh, the, one of the best accountants in the world. I, I really, really, I, I love accounting, man. Yeah, it's just very special. Still is to this day. Yeah. yeah. And so. then you made a transition from accounting to that very similar field, ministry. <laughs> right, right, right. It was just a path. Yeah, yeah, a direct path. Yeah. No, to be honest, Gary, that's an interesting story because um, I, I worked at that accounting firm. Taught a little accounting at, at, a, at a business college for a while in Memphis, but then Craft Food Service hired me on uh, in a trainee program. Became a accounting office manager in Memphis. Transferred me to California. I was accounting office manager there. We opened a big plant. Uh, they had started a new computer system, and I was on the ground floor learning all that. So I did some traveling for them. Then they had some problems in Oklahoma City with the office, and they sent me here to kind of help the accounting manager here. Plus, you know, at that point, probably in the early 80s, in the, it had retail and uh, uh, the restaurant side. Probably in the uh, restaurant side of craft uh, food service then, which was not bought up and sold 20 times at that point. I was probably the second or third at 27, 28 years old, second or third highest ranking African-American. Wow. And they, they were really nice to me. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I tried mm-hmm. to do a good job because mm-hmm. I liked it. And so I mm-hmm. uh, got here. They wanted to transfer me again around the same time, early 80s. And my father was was ill. This is the closest I'd been to Memphis. I could jump on I-40 and get there in seven hours. And when they got ready to move me again, I decided I would stay in Oklahoma City. I liked it. I thought it was growing. This, this was 80, early 80s. It's not like it is now. Right. But right. I could tell that, you know, it was. I didn't want to go back to Memphis because I, I'd get lost in that crowd. You know, this is a crowd that, you know, I, I really thought that I could, you know, I, this is something I can do something with mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma City mm-hmm. because it looks like a lot of things are going on and happening. And so I stayed. But around that same time, well, the other thing that happened is uh, you have some crashes in life, and I had a, a, a crash in life. Uh, my marriage was was breaking up, you know, just mm. just crashing, man. And uh, being that young and trying to feel life, I started back to going to church because I got okay. now okay. here, and it was a, uh, the pastor at the church I started. Matter of fact, I met a friend from Tennessee who invited me to his church, and that's why I really went. But the other part of the story, I met a friend at a bar, mm-hmm. <laughs> met a friend at a bar in Oklahoma City when I had just moved here, and and uh, he was from Covington, Tennessee, which is right outside of Memphis. And his words to me were, when we got to talking, and, you know, we found out that we knew a few folk. He said, I got someone at church I want you to meet. 
Hmm? <laughs> yeah. I said, well, yeah, yeah, you know, no, no. And uh, that was Thelma. That was Thelma. That was Thelma. And so that was the beginning of that. And it kind of, and so I said that because meeting her kind of pulled me back into the lane that I should have been in all the time. And really, before we got married, it was really our friendship, that, that Thelma's friendship and, and with me, that helped me to kind of uh, stop for a minute so that I could hear God all over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of her and uh, that relationship, mm-hmm. before we got married, I mean, it was we were friends working because she was like youth minister. I was I was youth minister. She was youth director. I started then getting reattached to my spiritual being. And uh, once you open that door, it's, it's over. And, man, when I started thinking about it again, it, that, that whole flood of memories of you do know <laughs> that I've called you for something else, that you do know that I'm, I'm still waiting on you. You do know the time is running out. You do know you need to make this decision. And uh, I acknowledge my call in ministry, man. And, and I tell you from there, it, uh, I, I, I will never regret it. I will never regret it. And you had then 30 years in the pastorate. From that point, 30 years in the past, started off in the clinical pastoral education. I was assistant minister at the church, started off in CPE, okay. at, uh, really right over here at Presbyterian mm-hmm. Hospital, which is now Oklahoma, the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center. Started over there, did the first year CPE program, and then they had advanced CPE. Right. I was one of the first second year students to go into the advanced okay. CPE program, and then did the second uh, residency down at VA and Children's Hospital. Love chaplaincy. I just, I just fell in love with it about that same time as when I got uh, feelings about a small church in Bowley, Oklahoma. In Bowley? Bowley, Oklahoma. And, uh, and went down, knew some of the family down uh-huh. there from, from the church I was presently in. And went down there and they called me and that was my first church. It was, it was such a pleasure to get the history of that, of that town. For those who are listening who may not know, Bowley is one of the historic black towns. Oh, black towns, that's right. right. The railroad was coming through at every so many miles. I don't know how I many, it was 10 miles. So they had to have water stops for some reason. And hmm. uh, Bowley is one of those towns. And Bowley is probably, well, you know, arguably, probably the, the most prestigious of all those towns. Still in existence, lost up, but it had cotton gins, hospital, bank, uh, own utilities. I mean, Bowling was a thriving. This, this started in 1903, I believe, mm. when they were established. Mm. So it was before stages. Mm-hmm. Right. Man, it was it was really uh, the history of that town and, and the African-American population. It was, I, I do believe I'm pretty safe in saying it, it had the largest population of any African-American town in Oklahoma at that time. So it was a lot of history there, right. but I mean, it had gone, by the time I got there in 90, it was, you know, it was, it was not that anymore, but sure. it was still, you know, had school. At that point, he still had a, a school and uh, the prison there, had a prison there that was part of the uh, economic uh, engine there. But so that, that, that's why I ended up my first church was in Bowling, mm-hmm. Oklahoma. Yeah, what was your first congregation in Oklahoma City area? Holy Temple Baptist Church. Holy Temple, Holy Temple Baptist Church, yeah, because I, I started preaching at Faith Memorial is where I mm-hmm. started my ministry. Then the first church I pastored was Antioch and Bowley, and uh, then the first church in, in uh, there was only two, the second one, Holy Temple in uh, Oklahoma City, yeah. And then you were there for how long? I was 15 years. I was both of them about the same at the time, okay. 15 years, yeah. Okay. yeah. I was a, Antioch was a small church. We had probably 60, 70 folks. And when I got here, 120, 130 folks at, at Holy Temple. Mm-hmm. But, man, it was a, uh, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, even with, you know, the problems of pastoring. I enjoyed it because I was able to do some really, really, I thought, wonderful things. I look back on it, you know, we built that 50-unit 
independent living senior housing right back there we right. had uh, a, which was a private public that was a private that's right that's right that's right uh-huh. uh and it was something that was needed in that community they had nursing homes but they did not have any place where as people were growing older but staying healthier mm-hmm. uh that they could uh, go and have a nice place to to uh live and uh, so I, i'm i'm still very excited about that mm-hmm. I, I drive by it whenever i get down i drive by mm-hmm. temple gardens just to see it and mm-hmm. see because that, that was a the other side of that was it was, they were telling me we'd need about $5 million and you know we couldn't get it. And I, I bet you I tried for five years to find ways of doing that once the idea was given to me. We finally did through a public park partnership with the Oklahoma Housing Authority and tax credits. But we got it. But I'm going to tell you, it was one of those things that reinstalled in me this idea mm-hmm. that there really is a God who really is able to help accomplish some things hmm. that if you just try mm-hmm. and uh, because there was no way I had people telling me you, you're crazy to do that you, you can't you know that, how you, where you gonna come with that money how you gonna get it and it took five years well we got it and I can remember going out there when they laid that first foundation and getting down on my knees and, and just thanking God because it was it, it was miraculous in mm-hmm. my mind you know and so mm-hmm. it still exists still I think one of the foundations in that community and, and help start to help other folks start thinking about it and they build a couple of other uh, facilities like that since, since then so yeah that was a big thing the other big thing was the connection with First Christian out in Edmond yes right man we did back to school block parties where we gave 5,000 packs of school supplies away I had a great relationship with that church mm-hmm. I mean I still see folks now who talk about how that uh, helped them to see things differently. We exchanged Martin Luther King programs uh, in addition to some other stuff, Sunday school program. But but we would we would go out there one year, and then they would come to us the mm-hmm. next year. And so mm-hmm. I, they always respected us, which was the other thing we didn't you know much larger church. <laughs> yes, right, much larger. Yeah, much yep. larger. But uh, they always respected our contribution to the relationship, which I thought was ultimately important for me and my congregation. And the first Wiz mm-hmm. Kids program in Northeast Oklahoma City was at Holy Temple, but it was in connection with First Christian in Edmond and so. And how many years did that relationship go on? When did, do you um, remember about how many? Probably about five years until I retired. And then after your pastorate, after you retired from that right. part of... A flunk uh, retirement, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> then you went on and you, you were elected first to the state, yeah. the House of Representatives. Right. Yeah, that was interesting because your Coburn announced his um, uh, medical diagnosis and he mm-hmm. was not going to run again. Mm-hmm. So both my state representative and my state senator decided to run for other things. And I've been involved in the party work, uh, Democratic Party. And um, so people started saying, well, you know, you ought to run, you ought to run. And, mm-hmm. and them said, you ought to run. And so mm-hmm. we uh, we cast our lot that very next year after I retired in 2013. We made the decision in 2014 to run really right before the fouling date, to be honest with you. Huh. The month before I had to make the decision to to officially enter that race was the month that Thelma received her diagnosis of uh, stage four lung cancer. Mm. And it was, I had decided not to run. And uh, she said to me, matter of fact, this is the other crazy part. We had driven to her home in Alabama to bury her sister who had died of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And up to that point, she had three brothers that died. I'd done all those funerals. They asked her to do her Mm -hmm. sister's funeral 
in light of mm-hmm. her diagnosis, it, obviously it was great because Demma was great, but it was great. But on the way back, I was telling her, you know, we were driving from there all the way back to Oklahoma City. And we were in Arkansas, and I remember I said to her, I decided I'm not going to run because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going mm-hmm. to happen with you, and I want to be there for you. And, and you know, we had had the depreciation already where the shock and all that. It was, it was traumatic. It was shattering. It, was, it really was. But, you know, we'd kind of mm-hmm. adjusted. She had started fighting, and so that mm-hmm. pulled sucked me into mm-hmm. the fight. So, But on the way back, and I remember when she, in response to that, she said to me, you're trying to make your decision on what might be. I need you for my sake to make the decision on what is right now. And right now, I feel mm. good enough mm. to go through that. And it, it just. And that was I, it. I, yeah, I couldn't back out then, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I signed the next. It may have been even the next week that I had to sign. And mm-hmm. we got back and I signed. And we uh, had a tough. That was the toughest race, was the first one. Now that they had been as tough, I'll be honest with you, they hadn't been as tough. And so. We did that. Served two terms over there. The senator left, and uh, I ran for the senate position. And here we are. So I'm real curious. I once read a, a historian and ethicist who said that pastors and politicians mm-hmm. have a very similar kind of authority that they have, which is persuasive authority. Mm-hmm. That you always have to woo and massage a constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm real curious about the transition from pastorate right. to um, legislator and politician and what translated well. And, you know, they felt well prepared because of, you know, look, there's politics in church. We all know right. that. Right. Because uh, there's people. Right. Because there's people, there's shared power, there's politics. So I'm curious in ways that the your experience in the pastorate helped prepare you for the work you're doing now. In other ways, that the the work as a legislator or a senator is really different from anything that you had. First off, that is a true statement. I, I tell folk all the time that it was that I could not have chosen a better field to have preceded me going into politics. That's just a fact. Because as a pastor, I tell folk all the time. I sit in my office, and a lot of the things. 60-75% of the things that people come into my office to talk to me about, you could take us, that person and me, and just transpose us over to my church office mm. and hold the temple and it would be the same conversation. Mm. So mm. It, it is. Now, the other side of it, you're right. As a pastor, you know, you stand up on Sunday mornings and stop what you're doing. Everybody look at me and listen to me because mm-hmm. I've got something mm-hmm. to tell you. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing in, in politics. I thought it was a great Transition for me, it prepared me well. You stand up in front of folks, talking to them, trying not only to to sway them one way or the other, but to inform them. My job as a pastor was to take the headlines and interpret them through the lens of scripture. My job as a legislator is to take the headlines and try to interpret them through the lens of what I believe is the best forward path for us. Mm-hmm. So um, I think they're very connected. Mm-hmm. I, and that translated very well, all of those skills that I used for pastoring. What didn't uh, work very well was the running into the thing that in politics, there's always somebody else who has more power. I don't, not position, it's just what, there's always somebody else. And so you have to now work with a group of people who are, in essence, on the same level as you, which is really unlike being in the church because as a pastor, you know, you and especially in the African-American Baptist tradition, 
I had some leeway. I had right. last word. Right. You know, right. Although I had all the weight on my shoulders, I had last word. Where right. in politics, I don't. You know, not only have I got to convince the constituents out there enough of them that I can get enough phone calls or enough of them calling other folks saying, "Hey, listen to Senator Young, Representative Young." I've got to deal now with folk who got elected just like I did. That is the challenging part because obviously they bring in positions and perspectives from their communities that are much, much different from the needs and hopes of my community. And so that's been the biggest thing, trying to, and, and then having this inequity as far as parties are concerned in the numbers here and uh, in the state of Oklahoma. The fact is, whatever party has the number controls. In the House, is 101 representatives. There's 24 Democrats. They only need 51 to pass any bill. Right. They got a super majority where they can, if, if they want to override a veto or whatever, they got that. So it's, in the Senate, it's 48 senators, 39 Republicans, 9 Democrats. We need 25 to pass a bill. So if I had to describe us, we're really insignificant. And the best thing we can do is to have that opposing view stated and stated clearly. That's the best thing because we're not going to move them off of where they are. But in life, you need that opposing view so that people can have something to see and hear to judge by what the majority is saying. We just want an opposing view so that we can compare. And that's, I think, is our most significant job. And I don't know if we're doing it to the best of our abilities yet. And I'd like to see us do a better job of doing that. I think this is a particularly hard time in terms of the era we're in as a, as a country regarding uh, anybody paying attention to an opposing view as other than um, uh, evil. Right, right. I'm glad you said evil. And when people stop me and talk to me, because they do, I have this going for me, that most folk who talk to me know that I pastored for 30 years. Uh huh. I tell them that I think some things in life occur, um, not right or wrong, not good or bad, but some things occur for our welfare. We don't understand that because it seems so ridiculous or so, or so hard or so mm-hmm. hurtful that mm-hmm. we can't grasp it, you know, because mm-hmm. it's so. And I think I am very concerned about where this country is. I am very concerned about the direction this country is going in. I am very concerned about the leadership of this country. But I also know that I still believe that it is, it is for a reason that we are in this period and in this season and it's larger than the person that's that's in the White House. It's mm-hmm. larger than that. Mm-hmm. And this country, I, mean, I like to say this country, you know, all the wars, you can talk about revolutionary from the Revolutionary War, breaking from England, Civil War, which was, you know, over slavery, but split together. The Civil Rights Movement, I think, from 40s, 50s till now, was the most tumultuous period and most meaningful period in the life of this country because it was the struggle for the soul of this country. We are in a connected struggle right right now for the soul of this country. I agree. So, you know, to me, I I put that across every time people talk to me because they want to talk to me. You know, know, where where is God? I think God right in the middle of this. I think God is saying, I I want to know how you're going to suffer in Egypt. (laughs) I want to to know how you go. Are you going to be faithful in in Egypt through all of this? Because it is for a reason that I'm carrying us through this. So um, I I really do believe that. So, you know, I've gotten to the point where it's difficult to hear some of the things because I think now about my my grandsons are older now. The last one, the third and youngest one is graduating high school. But 
Man, you're talking about when your leader talks the way that we hear, that's, that's just not a good example. That's the biggest thing I've got is right is not right anymore once you get past this level. You know, so like you said, it, it, the number of folk who have uh, committed themselves to protecting wrong instead of standing up for right, that, that's a bit scary. It is. That's a bit scary. It is. So you are both a racial ethnic minority mm-hmm. uh, within the Oklahoma Senate. Uh, Senate. Two blacks out of 48. Right. right. And I would think that your theological stance with its social justice mm. component uh, or even emphasis to it also puts you somewhat in a minority yes. in terms of religious right. uh, stance. I'm wondering ways that you've had um, maybe some opportunities uh, to witness to being a person of faith with a very different, deeply held set of beliefs than what maybe many of your colleagues right. uh, have done. Again, you know, it's, it's because there's only two African Americans, they don't know me, so they pretty much have studied, <laughs> read up on me because they want to know. And only, so you got 48, only two African Americans, so it makes us a little unique in that body, in that room, which is the other thing. Now, I, I've sat in, that, sat in the room, this particularly this past session as a senator, and looked across that floor because I was against the wall so I could see the whole thing. And I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's, um, even at my age, at 65, I'm telling you, I look out over there and I'm thinking to myself, this is, uh, this is still a problematic kind of thing for me to look out and not see anyone like me out of 48 folk who are the people who really make decisions concerning this whole state. Uh, it, that's, that's problematic. Second yes. thing is, we talk about differences and how they, they know I'm a minister, and so I think it's a plus for me. The larger difference is rural and urban. And a lot of those rural mm-hmm. senators, rural representatives, have a perspective that's not wrong but it's it's void of what really happens in a city. They don't they don't have the diversity to some of that changing with Hispanics mm-hmm. in some of those rural areas, but mm-hmm. but it's not there. So they don't have diversity educationally. They have more control because the school districts, the the superintendent, the teacher, <laughs> the mayor, the mm-hmm. police chief, mm-hmm. all go to the same church, mm-hmm. all go to the same mm-hmm. place to eat, and so you know if there's a problem. If, mm-hmm. if Johnny's acting mm-hmm. up, listen, we can. I'm going to see at McDonald's everybody I need to know to say, listen, we're working with Johnny here and we need. And, and so they don't quite get, even with the rates of poverty that we have proven are large in those yes. uh, rural areas, the, the connection between what happens in a city and urban area and what happens in a rural area, I, I think, escapes them. And so part of my responsibility I have felt since being just this first year over in the house, same thing, was. Helping them to understand the difference, why some bills, some legislation just will not work. Um, and I'm going to tell you, one of the most significant ones was this gun bill. And mm. my position was mm. simply, because the majority were rural, mm-hmm. shot guns in the back of their truck and you know, mm-hmm. guns, taking my children out hunting, you know, mm-hmm. learning them how mm-hmm. to shoot. It's part of their sure. life. What you don't get is, if you lived in an urban area, one, with the degradation of the family, you don't have those fathers who are teaching the kids how to hunt, why would they need to hunt if living in an urban area? Listen, maybe one-third, one-third is rural, and which is a big deal, another one-third, a little larger, that would probably go 40% rural. The other is urban, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, in particular, right. Yeah, right. That, which, which says a lot. You don't have that, so you don't have that 
Uh, the need of, of a weapon is not there. I understand why farmers need weapons. You know, when I tell folks that the one bill that that made me understand what I was up against in Oklahoma legislature was when they started talking about feral hogs. I had no idea what that was. I remember we talked about that <laughs> yeah, once before. I, right, yeah, right. A day and a half, and I'm thinking, why are we talking about hogs? And today it's in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just telling you, so I was not going to hog. That was bacon I eat. And, uh, but that, when you, when, when you get called off the floor, and there's a man, an old woman, his wife, and two little children, and he's saying to you, I need you to vote for this bill that will allow us to kill feral hogs at night using scopes, out of helicopters, whatever we need, because they're so damaging. Then you find, They really are damaging, too. Mm-hmm. And to hear the debate about that, I just, it blew me away, because we spent a day and a half. But that helped me to understand mm-hmm. the makeup and the context of being a legislator a legislator in Oklahoma is that there are some rulers that I've got to learn about because I'm going to vote on. So I don't know. Part of my responsibility is to help them to understand, you know, the gun bill may have been fine. You know, the rulers, you don't see any problem with that. You know, constitutional care. We have a right to bear on Second Amendment, you know, all that. But you don't understand the problems that that creates in an urban area where they're not hunting mm-hmm. and they're using those guns to, well, you know, purposes that uh, create havoc. Mm-hmm. In our city, and so that was that was the the, the thing, and, and they heard that, but it was difficult for them to overcome Second Amendment and my right, Second Amendment down here, and my right to carry a weapon, and so they they could not transfer what I was saying from where they were to mm-hmm. the areas that I served. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it still hurts us now. You know, it used to be said that polarization might be really bad on the national level, but because we have so much many more face-to-face relationships at the state level or local level, mm-hmm. polarization is not as bad. Is, what would be your assessment of that statement today? Wrong. Wrong. Yeah. 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 No. With, with the numbers we got, I just shared those numbers just in, in the state legislature. I don't think there's even a concern about bipartisanship. I don't think so. Right. Because they it's have not necessary. Numbers. It's well, you know, I feel irrelevant. Right. I'm be honest mm-hmm. with you. I feel irrelevant because we have we have gotten to this point where those numbers are so out of whack. They don't need to come over and talk to us about something. They have the power. There's always this is what I, I had to learn in the House and learn in the Senate that the numbers are the most important thing. Your party has the numbers. If you have enough numbers, you have options that can take away the rights of others in that group. To mm-hmm. express themselves, mm-hmm. That's, there, there's mm-hmm. a nuclear option in the House and in mm-hmm. the Senate mm-hmm. that if the nine Democrats wanted to do something, slow stuff down, whatever, they could. The, the rest of those folk could overrule us because of the numbers and make a ruling that would eliminate our ability to make any impact on anything that occurs on that floor. Now, they wouldn't want to do that because they'd have to face the, the news and media, but they can do that. You you fuss and argue and, and do that, but you know in the end, you know it's 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 done. There is a little different relationship between Senate and House. I was in both of them. The House was a little more fighting, hollering, yelling, screaming. You know, but, but I you know I got along well with with both sides now. So yeah, and, but it was still a little more rough tumble in the Senate because uh, I looked the word up. Senex 
is what we get the word sinning from, and it means old men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right, so, right. I, I, I tell folks, <laughs> right. I look around right. the room, I look at myself in the rest, that's what it is, a room of old men. So, old white men, matter of fact, you know. Yeah, so, right. um, it, it, is, it is interesting. There's a, a, a calmer demeanor in the Senate, and a lot of those folk I knew before I came over, so they're you know, very kind. And I, I know I got friends over there, so I talk to them and all, but they are still. Mm-hmm caught up in their uh, perspectives from their districts and uh, uh, you know people well you think they're just mean and yeah, no no they're not they, they just can't move away from what they believe is mm-hmm. what's best mm-hmm. for the people that they represent mm-hmm. that's the job mm-hmm. is to help them understand that it's larger than, than where they're coming from and so that's that to me is the difficulty trying to help them broaden their uh, view mm-hmm. of the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. This summer, I've heard more injection of the national stuff, mm-hmm. but I've never heard that on the floor. Hmm. Never heard it hmm. on the floor. Um, we just—it it was never just brought there, which, which said to me something that even though Oklahoma's obviously a, a Republican state, it just never was brought to the floor. The, the names. Of those individuals involved was never brought to the floor. It was never injected into our conversations, our debates, our um, trying to move legislation. It never was. Now I've seen more of that, and my expectation is, I think things are probably going to get a little uglier this session. We have an impeachment going on, right? Uh, so yes. and there'll, there'll be reactions to the yes. impeachment. So yes, so I think it's going to now that stuff that that we didn't have to deal with. I think it's going to to, to come out, and it, and I'm really saddened by that yeah. because I think it's going to really uh, hinder our ability to get some things done. Do you see any ways out of the mess? The mess for I would say for democracy, for competing interests, for political minority rights and the like, because we appear to be headed on the other direction of democracy as mob, as in majority rules, you know, we win, you lose. It's rather than, no, we won today, and we may need a different set of coalition partners tomorrow, and so so you always leave an out, and that's not where we're at. That's not where we're at, and uh, no, I don't. I I think we've got some, some very difficult days. Uh, very difficult days ahead of us. And the last election, two things jumped out at me that, that surprised me. Um, one was the level of, and I don't want to call it ignorance from the standpoint of, of lack of knowledge, but ignorance from the standpoint of, of really hearing and investigating mm-hmm. uh, what people are saying mm-hmm. and where they're coming from and being mm-hmm. honest about it. Mm-hmm. To be mm-hmm. ignorant, some ignorance is not being honest. So not being honest about it, that there were somehow a lot of folks who were touched by a message that pulled them out to support people that they didn't really um, investigate. The second thing was, it was very surprising the level of racism that I found to still exist uh, in this country. That that keep me back on my heels a bit don't get me wrong I didn't think it was gone Mm -hmm. but I did not know it was at that level that has erupted and and within that same second point is how someone can play that for their own benefit and people don't call it what it is 
where it actually helps them. Wait, oh, where it actually helps them. So, and I'm not even talking about the international stuff. So I forget, know, forget, right? Prior to the phone call, forget that. You know, because that's some, that's some craziness. Still, this country isn't. I mean, you know, you just think about our foreign relations. I mean, that's there's some crazy stuff going on, and I don't know if we realize how crazy it really is. And you know, we won't joke about Putin, but that's that's some scary stuff. That is some school you got. This is my friend. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and and his list, goal is to destroy us. A list of friends, right? <laughs> he, and, you right. Know, I, I, don't, I can't see anything other than he wants to destroy. That's He wants to be the man of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, and we placate and act like, yeah, no, it's all right. It's all right. He's not doing it. So I, I am very disturbed. I, I, I mean, this is very disturbing, and I think it is a struggle. Again, we're in the midst of a struggle for the soul and the spirit of this country. I think as as tough as the civil rights movement, which continues, so you got that embedded, right? Because you got another civil rights movement with the Hispanic population and uh, all of that occurring. How are we going to respond to our southern borders? How are we going to respond to African Americans? How are we going to respond to this? This obviously not covert, but overt racism that has been placed within the very center of our uh, conversation about democracy. So I, I am I'm concerned. I'm concerned. Yes. I keep calling to mind uh, Langston Hughes' mm. poem, where, which he concludes that make America, America again, the land that has not yet been, but yet must be. Uh, not yet been. Not yet been. But, but yet must be. That's yeah. right. And you know, we came so close with the election of, of President Obama, we came so close to the ability to open that conversation up. Yes. I didn't expect it to, to you know, turn everything around completely, but I just thought it was. And and so that, that swinging back of the pendulum knocked me back on my heels. I just couldn't fully grasp it again because of those two things. The ignorance mm-hmm. and the racism jumped out. And I thought, well, yeah, we're, we're still struggling. Right. Well, I would remind it again of uh, Isaiah's words that uh, people walked in darkness have seen a great light, but didn't really say how long the walking in darkness is going to happen. Right, and, right, it's, and it right. certainly isn't as short as the season of Advent nor an American election cycle. You could say it that the civil rights movement has a lot of undone business. A lot of undone business. Uh, right, right. And, and overcoming Jim Crow and overcoming the, the the Civil War and overcoming the founding narratives, which included some people and excluded others. We as people of faith just have a lot we could be contributing that unfortunately I see too many people of faith. You, you're absolutely right. I like what you just said. It's, it's perfect because when I deal with my community, what I do see is exact. I go back to the beginning of this country, how it was established that you left out some people with the Civil War, after Civil War, Jim Crow, how it was institutionally you suppressed a whole segment of the population. And now you want to wonder why we got the problems we have is because you you made that, you created that problem by saying you can't live there because those houses are going to accumulate in value. We're going to put you over here where those houses are not. And so these people, when they sell their home, they're going to make uh, two times as much as they paid for it when you sell your house. If you can sell it, you're not going to make right. it ever. So you have nothing to leave to your children. Mm-hmm. And so your children are going to start all back over again right. where you With are. that big wealth gap. That's problematic. 
to me. Uh, Reverend Dr. George Young, thanks so much for sitting down with me today on Committing Faith in Public, which you've done for many years, and <laughs> look forward to your continuing contributions. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.